0: Hello, my name is Jody Lee Moss, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking to author Kat Zhang, and we'll be talking about her new picture book, Amy Wu and the Perfect Bow, and also her middle-grade novel, The Memory of Forgotten Things. We'll also be talking about her favorite book, The Golden Compass, uh, which is also known as Northern Lights in the UK. Uh, This, of course, is the first book in Philip Pullman's great trilogy, His Dark Materials. And though we don't talk about it in the interview, for those who are interested, Philip Pullman has put out the first book, uh, La Belle Sauvage, of a companion trilogy called The Book of Dust, which looks at Lyra's life before the events of The Golden Compass, along with several other characters. But first, as usual, I'm going to start with a poem. And today's poem is from the poetry book Giant Children. Uh, This was written by Broad Baggert with illustrations by Ted Arnold. And I'm going to read the very first poem in the book, which is also called Giant Children. Giant Children. Psst! Listen very closely. There's something you should know. It's about a giant school where giant children go. Pages turn at giant speed as giant children learn to read, and giant brains are really quick when working on arithmetic. They pound the beat on giant drums and finger paint with giant thumbs, sing giant songs with giant lips and boogie dance with giant hips, giant shoes on giant feet and giant giggles when they meet. I watch them hour after hour, giant kids with giant power. I'm just the classroom hamster, but I promise you it's true. This is the school where giants go, and the giant kids are you. My guest today is Kat Zang. Author of the YA series The Hybrid Chronicles, the middle grade novels The Emperor's Riddle and The Memory of Forgotten Things, and just published this year her picture book, Amy Wu and the Perfect Bow. You can find Kat's website at catzangwriter.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Kat.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: As I mentioned, your latest book is a picture book, uh, Amy Wu and the Perfect Bow. Can you talk a little bit about that book?
1: Yeah, so Amy Wu in The Perfect Bao is about a little Chinese-American girl who sort of dreams about making the perfect bao. So bao, or baozi, as they're called in Mandarin, are sort of like these little steamed dough balls with various kinds of filling inside. They can be sweet or savory, and I really loved them as a kid, and I used to make them with my parents sometimes. And then I sort of, you know, left off making them for a while, but I got back into it as an adult and pretty quickly I discovered that it's not really as easy as people made it look and as my parents made it look as a kid. Um, So one day I thought, you know, this would be a really good picture book, having this kid struggling to make the perfect bow and having hers not come out as well as those of her parents and her grandma do. And I never really thought about making a picture book before that point, but the rest of it sort of went on from
0: there. And what was the experience like uh, doing? Because I know you've done YA and middle grade books. So it's a very different kind of uh, writing than a picture book. Uh, What was the experience like uh, writing a picture book this time?
1: Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I've always really loved sort of um, visual art in addition to writing. And I knew I personally wasn't going to be illustrating this book. But it was really great experience to know that we would originally – we would be matching up with an illustrator. And we found a really fantastic illustrator, Charlene, um, who I think really just added a whole different dimension to Amy Wu. When I first wrote the book, for example, um, there was nothing in the text to suggest that Amy had this sort of little um, cat companion. And that was something that Charlene came up with entirely on her own. But it added such an extra dimension of sort of fun and spontaneity to this book that I think really made it even better than before.
0: I don't think people really understand when a picture book comes together unless the author is the illustrator that, um, that you write the text and then the illustrator uses that text to come up with the pictures. And it's almost sort of an independent thing that's going on. So it's a, I think people think that you're sitting down together and working it all out, but it's sort of go, it's a more of a back and forth.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the team sometimes. There are certainly a lot of um, really wonderful picture books that are both written and illustrated by the same person. And I imagine that's a really unique and special experience being both the illustrator and the author. And there are certainly other teams who I feel like... um, the illustrator and the author probably knew each other in real life, knew each other before they ever submitted the project. So it was maybe more of a back and forth that went on before the story was ever submitted. But I think in a lot of cases, it happened the way it did for me and Charlene, where I wrote the text before um, there was any idea who the artist might be. And um, we submitted it to the publisher, who then reached out to Charlene, um, who did kind of come up with the illustrations on her own. But she did send me and my editor various sort of um editions of the book um different sketches that showed the characters performing the book in various different ways and we were able to sort of go back and forth and decide which one fit best so it was still very much a collaboration in the end
0: now i understand that there uh, may be another amy book uh coming out sometime in the future
1: Yeah, that's something I wanted from the very beginning and something I'm really, really excited that we're able to move forward with. Um, I think there's such a good um, track record for little kid books that have the same characters in different situations and Amy Wu is a book that explores um, a little bit of Chinese culture and sort of what it's like to grow up in a household that was kind of similar to mine when I was a kid and so the next book Amy Wu and the Patchwork Dragon which is due out in a couple years It kind of explores that to in another angle as well. It's about Amy and her being at school and learning about dragons. And the teacher gives them an assignment for every child to come up with their own unique dragon. And Amy sort of has trouble defining what a dragon really means to her because she has learned both about the sort of Eastern dragons that her grandma tells her stories about and that she learns about at home. But at the same time, as an American kid, she's learned all about Western dragons as well. So she kind of has this. this dichotomous uh, feeling of what a dragon is, and she struggles with that and tries to come up with something that's completely uniquely her own.
0: Now, previous to this picture book, uh, your your other book was a middle grade novel, The Memory of Forgotten Things, uh, which I did have a chance to read and enjoyed very much. And it has a very interesting premise. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about the, the premise of that novel. Yes,
1: yeah, so The Memory of Forgotten Things is about a trio of kids who have all lost someone who is very precious to them. They all live in a small town, and to these kids, sometimes it feels like each of them has been defined by this loss. So Sophia, the main character, has um, has these confusing memories of her mother, who died of cancer when she was six. So, for example, Sophia remembers her mom being there for her 10th birthday or celebrating Christmas with her when she was 11. And she knows these memories are impossible, but they still seem completely real. Um, So when, when she realizes that there's another boy in her class, DJ, who has similar impossible memories, they band together to try to figure out what's going on, what these memories might mean, and if there might be more to them than meets the eye. Um a third classmate Luke introduces them to Mr. Scott who's an astrophysicist who lives nearby and from him Sophia and her friends become intrigued by the concept of parallel universes and they get sort of obsessed with the idea that it might actually be possible to cross over into one specifically ones where they never lost these these very precious people in their lives.
0: And where did you get the idea uh for this uh novel?
1: Yeah, so I've always been really intrigued by by science fiction of all kinds and how it, along with fantasy, sort of allow us to explore themes and real-life occurrences using, you know, non-real-life situations. So for The Memory of Forgotten Things, I knew I wanted to explore this idea of grief and how it affects us, especially children, in really far-reaching and long-reaching ways and how difficult it can be to move on from grief. And I thought that parallel universes were a really intriguing way to explore that because at the root of parallel universes is sort of the question of like, what if? Um, And it's the idea that there is another world out there or many worlds in which all our what-ifs are reality- um, so I really wanted to be able to sort of tackle both these concepts at the same time. Mm.
0: So taking this sort of speculative idea, but also looking at sort of the emotional um, undercurrent that might be involved in it as well.
1: Yeah, I think all science fiction at the core of it is still very much about people and characters and no matter how fantastical the concept is, at the end of the day, it's always linked back to, you know, what does it mean for the people in the story or how have the people in the story affected the world around them and sort of um, changed it because of who we
0: are. Was there a a passage from the book that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so um, I do have a scene where Sophia, the main character, um, is is upset because she's come home um, from visiting dj's family to find that her her father is very upset and currently grieving and like i said she's just been at dj's house which is very lively and comfortable and when she comes home she really starkly feels a contrast between his home which is very happy and her own which is not so happy right now and i think the scene sort of Talks about how neither she nor her father never really recovered from her mother's death, and in it she sort of thinks back to the moment when she first learned that her mother has passed. So it starts She hadn't felt at all like crying until now. She'd been fine until this moment, protected by a haze between her and the rest of the world, by feeling like she was both here and not here, one foot in her father's darkened bedroom and another back in DJ's kitchen, chopping onions in the sink. She cried, and then she stopped crying and wiped her eyes with the heel of her hand. She should go home. Her dad might have gotten out of bed, and he'd be worried if she wasn't around. It would only stress him out more, and she didn't want that. They tried so hard, the two of them, to be okay. She should go home, but she was too sad, too angry, too full of feelings that would only fester at home, where she'd have to hide them. The bus came. Sophia got on board and swiped her transit past, no particular destination in mind. It was difficult sometimes to remember the period right after her mother's death. Everything had been so chaotic. Her mother had been sick for a long time, but as far as Sophia could remember, she'd be doing okay for a few weeks, maybe even a month or two. Then, suddenly, she'd gotten worse. Sophia's grandparents, her mother's parents, had been in town for a while. They'd taken care of everything around the house, been the ones to get Sophia ready for school in the morning and make her dinner at night. Her dad had spent all his time at the hospital. Then one morning, in the middle of recess, the teacher had found Sophia on the playground and told her that her grandmother was here to pick her up. Sophia had been in the middle of a game of King of the Mountain. She'd been king, standing tall on the highest point of the jungle gym, dodging the other kids' attempts to pull her from her perch. When she saw the teacher coming, she thought she'd gotten in trouble. They weren't technically supposed to play King of the Mountain or stand up on the jungle gym. She thought the teacher would yell at her. Instead, she was far too nice. That should have been a clue that something was wrong, but six-year-old Sophia hadn't been as good at reading adults as she was now. Still, she'd had a bad feeling in the pit of her stomach, a bad feeling that intensified when she saw her grandmother in the front office, her eyes red, her hair a mess. Oh, darling, she kept saying. Oh, darling, oh, darling. It was like she'd gotten stuck on repeat, like she couldn't say anything else. She grabbed hold of Sophia, wrapped her arms around her, and squeezed her so tight that Sophia couldn't breathe, couldn't find the air to cry, to speak, to do anything at all.
0: Thank you for sharing that.: Thank you. <laughs> Have you gotten that much, Uh, you gotten any feedback from readers of this particular book, um, either just uh, exp- experiencing the story or, or you know going through similar things themselves?
1: Yeah, so I think even really early on before the book was released, I had a critique partner who helped me sort of go through the book and make edits and things like that. And she happened to have also lost her mother at a relatively early age, um, not as early as Sophia, but also, um, very early. And I think it was really important to me that she told me that the book sort of hit her in a way, um, because she felt like it was very true to some of the experiences that she had had after her mother's death, um, I have also gotten feedback from readers I haven't gotten any readers specifically who said that they'd um, gone through something similar to what Sophia had gone through, but I've certainly had um, emails and sometimes in person experiences with readers who felt like this had really allowed them to reflect on what it was like might be like for you know a friend of theirs or A family member who had lost someone and sort of get inside, um, their feelings about that. And I think that's always been really important to me that, you know, books allow people to maybe experience things that they haven't experienced personally, or, you know, to reflect back on them and experience that they really have had and maybe allow them to feel that their feelings and their experiences, um, are not something that is true only for them, but something that other people have gone through and maybe find comfort in that as well. Hmm.
0: Now, the book you picked as one of your uh, uh, favorite uh, kids' books is The Golden Compass, or at least it's known as uh, The Golden Compass here, uh, written by Philip Pullman. It was first published in 1995 in the UK, and there it had the title Northern Lights. uh, When it was published in the US, the title was changed to The Golden Compass. And it's the first book of his trilogy that's uh, commonly known as His Dark Materials, uh, for readers who might not have had a chance to read this book yet, can you talk a little bit of uh, what it's about?
1: Mm-hmm. So The Golden Compass um, like you said, it's a first in a trilogy and it's set in a fantasy world where everybody is born with a demon or basically some sort of animal familiar of a kind that represents your soul. So what I always thought was really interesting as a child and I still do now is that child's children's demons are free to change form until the children reach approximately puberty and then they settle into a permanent form, one that's meant to represent um, the person's personality and character. So the main character Lyra is about 11 years old when the story starts um, and her best friend gets kidnapped by this nefarious group that's rumored to be kidnapping children all across the country and she sets out on a journey to rescue him and you know being a fantasy novel along the way she meets witches and talking bears and gains position possession of something called the alethiometer which is this magical or um, device that only she can read a device that will tell her the truth about anything that she asks it.
0: Um, When did you first encounter this book?
1: I was... I think about 12 when I when I first encountered it. I was in sixth or seventh grade and in middle school, I remember finding it at my library and being just so enamored with the first book that I immediately sought out the second two. Um, and luckily for me, they were all out by that point. Um, so I didn't have to wait between any of them and just sort of reading through all of them. And I think, you know, I was always a voracious reader as a child, but I remember this series having just a really, really strong impact on me. And after reading the last book, just wishing that I could spend more time in Lyra's world and sort of just be there forever.
0: Now, as you mentioned, Lyra is the main character, and she's one of the really great characters in uh, fiction. It's interesting, when we first meet her, she's not necessarily the most pleasant person uh that we might mean she doesn't all her qualities aren't necessarily uh nice qualities, let's say, but she's still a great character, and we learn and uh really start to um empathize with her. can you talk a little about who Lyra is and what makes her such a great character,
1: yeah, and I think a lot of the reason why I loved um the book so much growing up is because I loved Lyra so much, like you said she's she's such a vivacious character she's this little girl who um, is described sort of as a savage child, she runs free throughout the streets of her version of Oxford um, in her world. And she's this prodigious liar. And she is, you know, very confident of herself um, and gets up to all sorts of mischief. And the adults in her life don't really know what to do with her. She's very rebellious and she lives very much in her own world. And I think as a kid, I, you know, I I was probably a much quieter, um, more well-behaved child than she was. But I probably really wish that I could also just sort of run wild and be as sort of adventurous um, and courageous as she is in the book.
0: You mentioned, too, about one of the really interesting aspects of this novel is, uh, this idea of demons, as you said, this sort of, um, external soul that, uh, are attached to a person in the form of an animal, um, connected to the person in this way. You talk a little bit about, you know, what these demons are and why they're so important, because they really are an integral part of not just the characters, but to the plot as well.
1: Yeah. So. The Like I said, the demon is sort of a representation of the soul, and at the same time, their changing um, sort of represents, I guess, the idea that a child's nature is not set, um, and so much changes about a child as they grow up. And then once they reach a certain age, which um, Philip Pullman sort of uh, denotes as puberty, a child, I guess, reaches adulthood, they become more settled in who they are, and at the same time, their demon also settles as well. Um and I think one of the interesting things about the the books on a whole is how they address this idea of growing up and children leaving behind a sort of innocence and becoming adults. Um and I I remember when I was 12 and I first read this book I very much felt like somebody on the edge of childhood. Um, And really sort of struggling with this idea. Um, Up until that point in my life, I'd read, you know, books my whole life that had really, really celebrated childhood and how wonderful it was. And, you know, as children's books probably should. But at the same time, a lot of children's books had also sort of painted adulthood as something, you know, something kind of terrible. A lot of adults in in the children's books were, you know, the ones who couldn't see magic anymore and, and the ones who were boring and, you know, didn't go on adventures anymore. Only the children's went on adventures. And I remember being kind of upset with the idea that, you know, I was reaching this age where I wasn't a kid anymore. I was now maybe approaching, you know, one of those terrible teenagers or adults that were always really boring and the bad characters in books. Um, So for me, it was really interesting that that these books also sort of address children growing up. And Lyra in the books um, is also really resistant about the idea of growing up and having her demons settle. And she thinks it's all pretty terrible. Um, But by the end she kind of also grows to learn that there are good parts about being older as well. Um, And when her demon finally settles, it it feels very natural to her. Um, I do think that I have, like as an adult, I've gone back and I, I do think that there are also some questions that one might have about you know why a person's demon might settle and what that might mean about you know if a person's personality is supposed to be so set at like puberty it kind of suggests that um there isn't more room for growth after that which obviously is not the case um but I think it is an interesting way for um Philip Pullman to sort of create a very tangible um it's something very tangible to sort of mark the transition between childhood and adulthood that so many sort of middle grade and especially young adult books tackle.
0: Uh, when you're reading this as a young child, did you ever give some thought to if you had a demon yourself and it settled what that might be?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think most people who read this series have probably given it some thought. Um, I can't say that uh, the animals that I decided on were any deep reflection of my own personality, but I remember as a child, I really liked ocelots, and I thought they were very cool. So it was going to be that or a fennec fox. More for the coolness factor of the animal than any real reflection of my personality.
0: (laughs) makes sense makes sense okay there's a, there's a lot of aside, apart from lyra there's a lot of interesting characters to talk about more than can we possibly uh talk about but one of a particular interest to me was um and I'm going to I'm going to butcher this name uh York Berninson. Uh, he's mm-hmm. one of he's an outcast from this group of talking armored bears and like lyra when we first meet him you know he's kind of an well, not like Lyra, but uh, when we first meet him, we may not necessarily have the best impression. He's sort of frightening and brutal. But as we learn more about him, get to know, understand, like Lyra, you know, we really sort of uh, bond with him as a character. And I'm just wondering what's your uh, take on uh, this unusual character, this talking bear?
1: Yeah, so I, I think y- Yorick is a really interesting character. And they'd spend a lot of time in the books, especially early on establishing how unhuman he is. There's a, there's a cool scene where, um, it's established that bears cannot really be tricked. And he, he sort of challenges Lyra defense with him. And he always is able to figure out when she is truly meaning to strike him and when she's just pretending. And no matter how hard she tries to fool him, he cannot be fooled. Um, and then there's this sort of idea that the, the king of the bears, um, who has, uh, sent away um, Yurik as an outcast, Um, the king of the bears has been trying to become more and more human and he's been changing bear culture to try to emulate human culture and that actually is the downfall of the king um, because by trying to be more human he also um, loses some bear-like traits like the inability to be tricked and how um, in the end Yorick defeats him by being true to his sort of bear self um, and being very strong and confident In that rather than trying to be something else. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, Yurik also represents sort of nature and um, this very strong core. He's very like moral. And I think his support of Lyra also allows the reader to feel that Lyra, despite, you know, maybe some of her uh, more mischievous or less desirable traits is also someone that we should support as well. Because if Yorick believes in her, then I feel like the reader feels like they should believe in her as well.
0: Now on the opposite end of these two characters, we have somebody like Mrs. Coulter who when we first meet her seems very charming and cosmopolitan and very kind. But as we learn more about her, we get a very different picture of um, who she Is. Um, And even though she sort of pops in and out of the novel, she looms very large uh, throughout um, uh, the book, even when she's not there. Can you talk a little bit about Mrs. Coulter and what makes her such a uh, terrific, uh, if not the most pleasant character?
1: I think she's really fascinating, Um, even from when she first shows up in one of the early scenes. It might actually be the first scene in which she shows up where she lures... um, a little boy sort of onto a ship so that he can be sent away, um, so that the, the gobblers, as they call them, can do these terrible experiments on him. And how they describe that she's so alluring and so charming and all the children sort of followed after her, um, almost as if she's like this Pied Piper, um, character. And how even after It becomes established that she's, you know, quite a villainous character. We never really quite know what to think about her because, especially um, in books two and three, she also exhibits a lot of love for Lyra um, as her mother. And we are never quite sure um, how much of it, how much of her actions are, you know, fake and how much of them are real. And she's always a very, very complicated character, but at the same time, someone who. Remains very alluring and very charming. I think both to the characters inside the book and to the to the reader as well.
0: She's not just a one dimensional villain, just looking at taking over the world. In other words,
1: yeah, I think both she and Lord Asriel are sort of they're very different characters, but they're they're also similar in some ways as well.
0: Now, a big part of the appeal of this book is just this whole world, you know, unlike ours that Philip Pullman. Uh, creates uh, through character and um, and description and setting and things like that. I'm just wondering what you think what other authors could learn about how he helps create this unique world that he sets the story in.
1: Yeah, so I think that world building is always such a huge part of any novel, especially, you know, obviously, we think when you think of um, fantasy and science fiction, but even books that in everyday life, you know, there's a lot of world building that's just done. If we want to set a book in a particular city or a particular place. And I think Phil and Pullman does such a great job of creating this world that's similar to ours in some ways, and yet very, very different, um, even down to certain details, like using different terms for things. Um, a lot of it uh, honestly went over my head as a kid, and it's only going back that I reread and I discovered that, um, for example, lot he, instead of using the word scientific um, instruments, he'll say, you know, philosophical instruments or, you know, churches are called or- oratories. Um, and, you know, scholars are, you know, more like the scientists of our world and things like that. I think he also has really unique terms for, I forget what they are exactly, but he has different terms for things like, um, electricity and the Metro and things like that. Um, and also the fact that, um, he, has very different politics in his world in various ways. Um, I think I completely missed as a child that New Danes was supposed to be almost, you know, or North America or America was. And the fact that, you know, Texas is a country in this world and things like that. Um, And I think they're, they're almost like fun Easter eggs to go through and figure out what's same and what's different and how all of that affects the world.
0: So reading this as a child is one thing, but reading it as an adult, you start to pick up on all the allusions and references that he's making that might have been overlooked uh, through the first time.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of world building is good when it's sort of layered like that, where there's enough of it to create a sense of the world, but maybe at the same time, um, it's done in such a light way that it doesn't bog it down. But upon rereads, you're able to dive even deeper than you did the first time you read the book.
0: And you've gone – after you read the first book, you went ahead – did you read the other two books in the series, um, which I don't – I can't re- – now I'm trying to remember. The Subtle Knife and I can't remember the last one uh, right at the moment. Um, anyway, uh, but you've read uh, ahead to the the rest of the series as well?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. Yeah, I did. I, I think – as a kid, I, I think I honestly, I like The Golden Compass best. Um, I reread that one the most. And um, I've read the other two less frequently. But I think they did add a lot to the story as well. Of course, The, the Settle Knife um, introduces Will, who's a boy from sort of our world, um, so to say, that the real – the our real world um, and sort of brings him into this whole fantasy world that Lyra comes from as well. And that's always really interesting to sort of introduce um, someone we're perhaps more familiar with and he will. So will becomes almost, you know, an an audience surrogate in a way and that he gets to experience all these strange and fantastical happenings that are going on. Um, And like I said um, previously, some of, you know, the, the uh, endpoints of Lyra's character growth and everything happen in, in books two and three, as she sort of grows up from very much the, the child running around the streets in book one to someone whose actions sort of affect the destinies of, of all the worlds. And as she grows up, um, so that she become more powerful in her own right. Hmm.
0: Are there any particular uh, passages uh, from this book, the, the, the Golden Compass, that you'd uh, like to share?
1: Yeah, so there's a particular passage early on in the book um that sort of describes Lyra before she goes on her adventure. And I always really liked it as a child because it sort of talks about children playing and how this is how children's war games or or games in general are something that are very important to them but maybe not something that adults can understand. So it goes Just as she was unaware of the hidden currents of politics running below the surface of college affairs, so the scholars, for their part, would have been unable to see the rich, seething stew of alliances and enmities and feuds and treaties which was a child's life in Oxford. Children playing together, how pleasant to see, what could be more innocent and charming. In fact, of course, Lyra and her peers were engaged in deadly warfare. There were several wars running at once. The children, young servants, and the children of servants, and Lyra, of one college, wage war on those of another. Lyra had once been captured by the children of Gabriel College, and Roger and their friends Hugh Lovett and Simon Parslow had raided the place to rescue her, creeping through the presenter's garden and gathering armfuls of small stone-hard plums to throw at the kidnapper's. There were 24 colleges, which allowed for endless permutations of alliance and betrayal. But the enmity between the colleges was forgotten in a moment when the town children attacked a colleger. Then all the collegers banded together and went into battle against the townies. The rivalry was hundreds of years old and very deep and satisfying. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on a little bit to go a little more into that. But then it summarizes it all sort of. That was Lyra's world and her delight. She was a coarse and greedy little savage, for the most part, but she always had a dim sense that this wasn't her whole world, that part of her also belonged to the grandeur and ritual of Jordan College, and that somewhere in her life there was a connection to the high world of politics, represented by Lord Asriel. All she did with that knowledge was to give herself airs and lord it over the other urchins. It had never occurred to her to find out more. So she had passed her childhood like a half wild cat. And I always thought that passage did a great job, not only of sort of establishing who Lyra is and what her world is before she's changed by everything that happens in the book. But to me, I remember being 12 and just thinking like, oh, like that kid's really true. Uh, maybe I never, you know, grew up exactly like Lyra, but there's so much um, that goes on in the ad- interaction between children that I feel like um, adults never truly understand once they're no longer children. Um, so that always made a big impression on
0: me. He seems to understand that the games children play are not just, you know, silly games, but can be very serious business between the children that are involved.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: Well, uh, Kat, thank you so much for um, uh, picking this book today. Give me a chance to reread it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time.
0: You can find Kat's website at katzangwriter.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled "All Together" is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at Dream Gardens JLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.